So this is uh, the third week of uh, the miracles in the in the uh, Gospel of John. If you've uh, been with us for these last three weeks, two weeks ago we um, two weeks ago we spent some time discussing the blind man in John 11. And then uh, last week we discussed John 9, where Jesus raises Lazarus. And so we've been intentionally working backwards through John uh, to eventually, I'm going to, we're then going to rewind or fast forward to the uh, Passion Week uh, events from John 16. So just so you know where we're going with Lent, we've been kind of working our way backwards from John 11, looking at the supreme miracles in the book of John. Next week, we're going to see Jesus encountering the woman at, at the well, and then um, we're going to, that's kind of tying into our theme of Lent this year, which is in this season, we often see our depravity in a really concrete way. Uh, for those of us who are fasting during this time, you're seeing the power that your flesh has on your mood and on your appetite, and you're also encountering uh, inward motivations for why you're doing fasting, what you're, what you're really uh, hoping to get through this season of Lent. And, but, you know, this isn't just something that we observe during Lent. This is something that you observe throughout all of your Christian life. You encounter times in your walk with God where you notice the terrible ugliness of your, uh, of your sin. Even as a believer, there are times where believers do horrible things to other people. Uh, you know, sexual sins which break down families, or sins of pride and jealousy, sins of foolishness that take you as a young man or a woman uh, off of the path of God for your life in such a way that you will pay some sort of consequence, such as bad financial decisions or, you know, ruining your academic career, etc. We don't uh, merely look at externalities. The, the, all of those things are the fruit of inward sins, the sins of the heart, sins of the mind, sins of the emotion, where we assert our own uh, opinions and will above God's will. And so, in the midst of this uh, time of Lent, we're kind of noticing these leaves of the tree, but, but even outside of the season of Lent, we see often how we are just we have problems, and and how do we reconcile uh, being a believer with those types of problems? And the answer, in my opinion, to every problem that the Christian faces is to apprehend and to come into the knowledge of a greater understanding of just how amazing Jesus is and what he has done for you truly does apply. What I mean by that is you can be a Christian and think, oh, well, I'm already saved. Why is this stuff still happening? Even though you already are a Christian and you, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you, you've begun to walk with his people, you've begun to repent from mindsets that have been going away from him, uh, you still do bad things and your conscience is smitten. How do you know that God is still favorably disposed to you? And I believe that this passage, along with what we saw last week of Jesus raising the dead and uh, the week before opening the eyes, these passages in the gospel show us Jesus's motivation for physical healing in order that there would be a spiritual healing. A and that is what we need today as, as believers. Um, in a way, you can read these uh, accounts as parables or narratives themselves that, that dive a deeper meaning to the heart 
of a believer. And that's what we've been looking at these last two weeks and what I hope for us to see today. So I want to go through this passage. Um, I want to look at what these uh, invalids are, uh, a metaphor f- uh, a metaphor for. Uh, I want to look at how the Jews respond to this healing that Jesus does, and they just start immediately going after this man who's been healed. I want to look at how Jesus begins to excuse exclaim or describe through these uh, passages, through this situation, who he is as the Son of God, and then finally what Jesus himself says about his motivation for his earthly ministry being done unto the resurrection of the dead, which we recite week after week in the Creed. Um, One of the things that we at this church are deeply interested in is forming within our people an understanding that your main goal as a Christian man or woman is not to die and go to heaven. Your, your, the end goal for your life, the vision for your life, according to this passage, is that you will be resurrected to the resurrection of life, forever living eternally with God on the earth. That is, God, the new heavens, heaven and earth will be joined at the end of the age, through Jesus Christ and he himself, after completing a judgment of all who have ever lived, you will enjoy your creator for, for all eternity. And, and that is what this passage is really getting at, is not are you blind or lame or sick now, or are you unable to hear the voice of God, but are you one who would hear the voice of God and be resurrected now, in a spiritual way, unto a second resurrection or the the final resurrection at the end of the age. And that's the metaphor that goes through, that's the word language that is is used in these, in the last half of this uh, chapter. So, after looking at Jesus' motivation for his ministry, we're going to look at the resurrection of the dead and how it relates to and is uh, one and the same with uh, salvation. So, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, we, we see Jesus going up to one of the feasts, and uh, immediately they arrive at the sheep gate, and this is speaking about uh, Jesus' compassion as a shepherd for the people of Israel. Uh, we see right here at the beginning that there is kind of a multitude of invalids. I want you to imagine this. There's a, a pool or a swimming pool. Imagine a swimming pool, and all around there are just people with wheelchairs or they're wooden wheelchairs back then, but there's crutches and there's bandages and there's people who are functioning like doctors running around uh, trying to take care of these people. They're destitute. Many of them can't walk, which means they're sitting around in their own filth or stench. Have you ever been to a, a larger city? We don't have this much in Dayton. I think I've seen one or two people, but whenever I visit a larger city, Portland, Chicago, D.C., I'm overcome with the number of people who are sitting on the street in their own stench and destruction because their life is so broken that even their support structure, their natural family has abandoned them, and they're either an alcoholic or uh, paralyzed or you know, blind or deaf, and they are literally uh, dying on the street as they live. Uh, this is the situation that I think Jesus is encountering uh, when he shows up for this feast. All around this place are people who can't walk, and they don't probably have people helping them. Jesus, again here, we've seen this week after week these last two weeks, 
Jesus, again, defies our expectations. We can never put him in a box. If you or I, you know, saw this situation and Jesus was there, we'd say, Jesus, you can heal all these people. But Jesus' motivation for what he's about to do is way beyond just physical healing. He is after the heart, and he's after revealing who he is. Jesus says in verse 6, or when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question. Now, first, this man had been there for 38 years. Can you imagine 38 years of destitution, living by a swimming pool, probably having some money through begging? Uh, Your life is totally defined by your uh, crippled state, by by your inability to walk. This is what defines you as as a person. You are living beside this pool, hoping to be healed miraculously by God. And Jesus has the audacity to come and ask you, do you want to be healed? One of the things I, I think is important, if you're reading the gospel seriously, is to be constantly amazed by what Jesus does. If you're not slightly uh, perturbed or every once in a while surprised at Jesus' actions— Let me submit, maybe use your imagination while you read the Bible. Uh, But Jesus comes and he asks this guy, who's been there for 38 years, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question. Perhaps you might even think it's slightly ridiculous or at worst a little abusive or offensive, like, of course, Jesus, he wants to be healed. But I think Jesus is getting at a larger issue behind this man's lameness or or inability to walk. Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? In order to get to the question, do you recognize your need for a healer? And this is what he did when Jesus was healing the blind man two weeks ago when we saw Jesus discussing with the Jews. The Jews say to Jesus, after Jesus says uh, that, you know, if you're you're walking with me, your eyes are full of light, the, the Jews then respond to Jesus, and are we also blind? Jesus responds, you are blind, your blindness remains because you say that you see. And, and so, because of this uh, theology behind the, the metaphor of healing, Jesus asking this question, do you want to be healed? It's not just a surface-level question. Jesus' words are piercing right to, this heart, the, to the heart of this man, asking him, do you recognize your need for a healer? Not just for your lameness, but that your whole life needs to be put back in order. The sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. That's why the verse 4 is important to understand why it's missing, because verse 7 is explained by what was verse 4. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. This man had no one to help him. He had no friends. He had no one to assist him in his uh, desire to get healed. And this man acknowledges the situation that he can't do anything. And the question proposed to us by the text is, do we? Do you acknowledge your inability to do anything about your paralytic condition apart from crying out for the Son of Man to save you and to heal you? The question that Jesus says, do you want to be healed, is a question that is posed to us by the scriptures. Each one of us must answer this question. Do you recognize your need for a divine intervention, or do you think that you're basically a good person? Because if you think you're basically a good person, apart from Jesus, you have not yet met him, and he cannot do anything to help you. 
Jesus' question, although it seems foolish to the natural mind, is actually the most important question that could be asked of anyone, physical healing or not. Jesus heals him, and look at the power of Jesus. Now, you and I, we, we may not recognize our need for Jesus, but Jesus comes and he starts to explain it to us. Do you need to be healed? Is not the pool of Bethsaida a picture of all the world? Is, that, is this not just a metaphor for us to understand that we, you and I, we all seek our own watering holes, our own places where we try to find reparation for our ills? This is a metaphor. This, is a, this narrative is a parable for the spiritual condition of man. And you and I, we make our own attempts to get into the water any way we can. And all we really need is an encounter with the true healer. The question to each one of us is, wish we, is whether we wish to remain in our condition or whether we wish to actually get well. And yet the voice of God is powerful, even breaking through the hardness of heart that may say, yeah, I, I basically do believe I'm a good person. I have been thinking this whole time that I'm kind of okay and Jesus is in the sidecar on my life. Verse 9b, now that day was the Sabbath, Uh, sorry, verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. I I want to say very strongly that at the verse of nine, uh, at verse nine, the healing and the obedience of the word of God come together. However, grammatically, the healing comes first. And this is an implication of the nature of the gospel. You and I, before we hear the word of Christ, before we have the gospel recreate us, are unable to do anything in terms of following the word or command of Christ. Before Christ liberates you, you cannot obey his law. That was the message of the book of Exodus. Before you are brought out of Egypt, you cannot be given the law. That, that is the point of the gospel, is grace first and then enablement, empowerment, aided by the Holy Spirit to walk out the commands of Christ, having them being written on your heart after you are made alive. Jesus is not in the business of sending the Spirit to write the law of God on dead people's hearts. He is in the business of healing, of resurrecting, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. Immediately, the Jews, they respond to this healing, and they just start bruising him They beat him up, just like we saw uh, two weeks ago with the blind man. The Jews immediately pounce on the situation and start to make sure everything's all in order and all the ducks are in a row and all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. They're, They're asserting their own authority to determine the validity of this situation that has already taken place. They are the epitome of armchair quarterbacking. Uh, at my company, we have cable because we're a, a television company. And the downside of that is that I have a number of coworkers who like sports. And being that it is March Madness, I have watched four or five sports games this week, which is more than all of the rest of the year combined. Now, <clears throat> that being said, uh, I have noticed in our office quite a lot of armchair coaching, which is the other people... In the, uh, in the room, because we have TVs on the wall so we can test our software, uh, they will say things like, you know, that was a bad call or that was a bad play or he needs to get on the board, whatever that means. Uh, you know, and, and 
every once in a while they'll they'll get very angry because the ref called a foul when there was no visible contact, etc. But this is exactly what the Jews are doing. They're coming in after the situation and they're saying, that was a foul and nobody called it. And they are attempting to be the referee over the Son of God. Now, this is amazing to me. 9b, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful lawful for you to take up your bed. What an interesting consideration Oh, okay, I was lame for 38 years, unable to do anything with my life, totally defined by seeking healing at a broken cistern, if you will. And at this place, I then was encountered by a man, and he happened to do it on the Sabbath. And this is what you're concerned with. The hypocrisy of the Jews is apparent, is it not? And yet to others, our own hypocrisy is just as apparent. We, you and I, we have ways that we put laws on others, put laws on ourselves, expectations on others that are not at all biblical and not at all related to any sort of reality with faith in God. It, it was arguably the Sabbath. In fact, what I'm most surprised, as we're going to see in a minute, is the audacity that the gospel writer has in communicating unequivocally that, yes, it was the Sabbath. They are right, technically, but they are wrong morally and really. Verse 10, uh, verse 11, But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. What this man is doing is responding to, rightfully so, the accusation from the Jews saying that Jesus' command is more important than obeying your preconceived, twisted notions of what the Sabbath is. And that is always the case, even with us. The law that we make up that asserts God's opinion about a matter that isn't God's opinion about a matter or is done in a way that is harsh or critical to our brothers, that is the same as telling Jesus he's wrong for healing on the Sabbath. And in the midst of this, uh, this man protests, but they question again, verse 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. What an interesting thing that Jesus does. Again, he surprises you, everything he does. Jesus is so uninterested in gathering a name for himself that he doesn't stick around long enough for the person who had been lame for 38 years to even recognize or know who just healed him. Wouldn't that be an interesting situation? Jesus literally runs up to this guy, has a two-second conversation. Do you want to be be healed? Yes, sir, I, I do, but no one can come and help me and put me in the pool when the angel comes. And then he says, rise up, uh, take up your mat and walk. And then he literally leaves, like right after 15 seconds, 30 seconds maybe. The man actually had not enough time to find out who had healed him. This is exactly like the story with the blind man. And so Jesus then seeks him out. Um, Jesus's healing was done so quickly so that this man couldn't even catch his name. Why do you suppose that is? Why is it the case that Jesus wanted to leave so quickly? Well, I can say uh, at least a few reasons. A, he didn't want to gather a name for himself. He didn't wish to seek his own glory, but he also 
knew that there was about to be a very big situation, and the healing that Jesus wished to bring, wishes to bring goes beyond the surface level of this man's healing uh, of, his, of his legs. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing, may, uh, nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. After some time had passed, Jesus goes and seeks out this man, and in the midst of that new conversation, Jesus explains why this happened. Again, Jesus is not fitting within our conceptual notions of how he should or should not behave. Um, when when Jesus was uh, encountering the blind man, if you remember, we talked about how the disciples said, was it this man's sin or his parents? Jesus said, neither. It was done so that the, the Son of God may be glorified. Here, he indicates that this man really did sin in such a way as to bring sickness and death into his life. Jesus tells the man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And I think that at a surface level, he might be talking about that this man's sin did in fact come into uh, some sort of effect on his legs or his ability to walk. But I think what Jesus is saying more than that is that I came to, to heal your sickness in order that I came to conquer your sickness in order that you would conquer your sin. In Genesis uh, 4-7, God is encountering Cain and Abel, and the sin that comes to Abel, God describes that sin, sin is crouching at the door, or sin is a croucher, and you must master it. Its desire is to take you down, and you must master it. Jesus is not saying in this way, uh, sin so that nothing worse may happen to you, verse 14, saying that you're going to become paralyzed again. Jesus is concerned with sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you in that you don't become spiritually unable to walk, one who is destined for destruction, as we see at the end of the chapter. So, arguably, the Jews are totally enraged when this takes place. Jesus then goes on to describe the situation being as such. Verse 17, Jesus answers them, my father is working until now and I am working. What's amazing to me is that Jesus never entertains a political spirit. He doesn't play his cards right in order to, to disarm or quell the Jews so that he can have more time to go around doing his earthly ministry. Because his earthly ministry is not just about healing, it's about revealing who he is and who the Father is who sent him. And so Jesus then goes on and actually, um, he doesn't antagonize in a fleshly way the Jews, but he says things that provoke them further. And Jesus uh, agrees with them, saying that the Father is joining in on the action. We know absolutely that Jesus has righteous motives, and he's not doing this in a fleshly kind of argumentative way. He's not trying to win a debate. Uh, so why is he doing this? What's Jesus getting at? I believe what Jesus is saying in saying, my father is working until now, and I am working, asserting that the father is working on the Sabbath, uh, is, is like this. The father, along with the son and the spirit, created the world originally good, and ordered it in such a way that they rested on the seventh, seventh day, which is the basis for the Sabbath itself. In Exodus, you, the justification for the Sabbath is because God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. 
And then the second justification for the Sabbath in Deuteronomy is a day for remembering the six days of creation of the world and the creation of, of Israel through what God did to Egypt. And so in this way, there is a framework. God did uh, six days of work and rested. Then God did another mighty work, right? In, in a way, you can understand Exodus as being a recreative or a restorative work by God informing a special people on the earth. In, at the beginning, there was chaos over the surface of the deep, and then God instituted order, separating water from ground. And in the Exodus, there was a terrible situation going on for the Israelites. He then brings them out. At one point, he divides the waters and brings apart dry ground. It's a way to understand what the Old Testament is speaking about concerning the creation and the Exodus. And this is the way that Jesus is speaking. My father is working until now, and I am working. Since sin and death has entered the world, God has resumed his work in restoring creation and bringing about its fulfilled destiny. God is not just in the business of restoring everything old. He also wishes to bring maturation to a final re uh, final ending point, which is the breaking in of eternity. And that restoration, that redemption is still being worked out. Jesus is saying that my father and I are doing these things because we still have work to do. And you Jews who are, are slandering us about working on the Sabbath, you aren't involved in this work. This is our work, and you haven't joined in on it. So Jesus said to them, 519, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. Jesus is asserting that his action of breaking their preconceived notions of the Sabbath is the same action as God himself. Therefore, the Jews are faced with an amazing conundrum. The law that they supposedly had received from God, which they had twisted into their own uh, machination, um, they now go on to basically be confronted with a God who's breaking the law that he gave them. Now, what's amazing to me is in verse 18, uh, in this chapter, the, the gospel writers say this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. The gospel writer asserts and agrees with the Jews that, yes, Jesus did break the Sabbath. That's what it literally says in this verse. And so, what we're faced with is a God who is about more than just the keeping of a law. He's about an inward reality taking place and so Jesus confronts this man and then begins to go on a little discourse describing uh, who he is. Jesus gives us a glimpse at the love, the honor, the grace, the submission, the um, harmony that exists within the divine or within the Godhead. And the Father in this situation shows the Son in order that the Son may join in and do the same works that he himself is doing. Jesus is saying to the Jews, I'm working on this day because there's work to be done. You don't know who the Father is because the very law that you have twisted from its original intention, the Sabbath being made for man, you are now using it to browbeat and rule over those who are in destitution and need of mercy. And not out of subjection, but out of love, the Father will, do, will not do anything without revealing it to the Son. This is an amazing insight into God's heart because what he's saying is, 
that Jesus is coming to heal the sick, to restore those who are broken. And the Jews are all about keeping a set of laws. They are all about making sure everything's in order so that they can fit in with God's plan, so that they can earn or merit or, or at the end of the day, feel like they're right. Jesus is about actually setting things outright. The Father and Son are working together to bring about the redemption in the sons of man, and this is exactly what they are about. Those who hear the words of Jesus come alive, but in this situation, there are those who, even though they were living in Israel, and supposedly Israel having the oracles of God, these people around the pool were still in a destitute situation. So what's the, what's the remedy? Jesus says, the remedy is to hear my voice. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is saying there is an hour coming and is here. He is not talking in this verse about just the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. He is clearly indicating a spiritual hearing, a spiritual living, a spiritual resurrection, that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul explains in Romans, would actually come alive. And then he gives a justification for how this is to take place. Because the Father and the Son do everything together, Jesus then asserts verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given, given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. When we sang this morning, be exalted in your judgments, stretch out your scepter of righteousness, we as a church were praying that Jesus would destroy his enemies, not kill them in such a way as they are destroyed, but destroy his enemies, those being explicitly sin, sickness, and slavery toward, toward the world system. Not at all that, you know, uh, some people choose whatever political leader you don't like, that they would just be killed. That is not at all the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that there are dead people walking around who do not know God. And Jesus, when he speaks, those people can hear his voice and they can come alive. I'm very sympathetic in, in theory with some of the zombie movies, uh, as long as they don't get too gorish, because it presents a really amazing picture. There are dead people walking around everywhere, and they don't have the gospel in most of those movies. Maybe I Am Legend. I would recommend you to go watch that with John Gray, and he'll explain it to you. Um, but those movies present reality that we often are blind to see, that there are tons of people, most people, walking around who are dead in their spirits, who do not know God, they're haters of God, they're haters of each other or their fellow man, and they're haters of themselves. They're broken and destitute, lame, blind, deaf, mute, paralyzed. And they are unable to do anything about their situation. And Jesus, in verse 25, says, when they hear the voice of the Son of God, they will live. This is the vo this is a verse, one of the many verses that are uh, a powerful foundation for gospel witness. But this is what we bank on: that the voice of God is powerful. That when people hear the authentic gospel, unadulterated, not messed with, that they can come alive. That Jesus can bring them up. Verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. 
uh, Jesus moves clearly into prophesying about the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, but he is also speaking about the spiritually dead. He he reiterates, but then translates or or connects these two ideas from verse 25 to verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is saying, if you believe there is a, is a resurrection of the dead people, all the dead people at the end of the age, some who go to a resurrection of life, some who go to a resurrection of judgment, then why is it so marvelous that you would be that you would not be believing that I can actually cause people to come alive in their spirit? Jesus is saying that the the faith in believing that Jesus will speak and those who are dead will live, an hour that is coming and is now here, that is less uh, of a faith-filled position than believing that at the end of the age, God will cause all those who have died in the whole earth to be raised again and then to be judged. And so this is what we are looking for in this season of Lent. We see deadness in areas of our life. We see sin that needs removed. We see inability to obey God's law. We can't jump when the angel stirs the water. We have no ability to uh, to go after God in this way without the aiding of his Holy Spirit and his special peculiar work that he alone can do to make us alive. And that's what we're banking on. Our faith as believers is not only that we will be one day raised from death Whenever we, whenever we die, you know, that's, that's going to be our hope is that we will see God in the flesh and that we will live with him forever. That is our final hope. But in the midst of waiting for that final hope, our only hope now is that Jesus would, would speak to us and that we would hear his voice. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your gospel. We ask you, Lord, that we would abandon all self-effort to cause ourselves to, uh, to somehow come alive. Lord, we would see that as just perpetuating a zombie-like state. Lord, we do ask you that you would come and that you would heal us. Lord, we confess that like these men and women at this pool in, uh, at the Sheep Gate, we are, we are like them in that we are blind, we are lame, we are unable to follow your law unless you make us alive. Jesus, we are, are those who need you to cause us to rise up and take our mats and walk. Lord, we do ask that in this season of Lent, we would uh, fast with right motives, that we would be able to follow you in the midst of, of tough situations, in the midst of not understanding what we're going through, but with a great trust that you are speaking. Lord, I do ask that you would cause those in our midst who have not yet been made alive, who are who are not following you in righteousness, that you would cause them to come alive and that they would see the Son of God dying in their place on the cross. Lord, I do ask that you would quicken those who are, are still asleep, that you would waken those who are dead, and that you would cause us to follow you in newness of life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.